I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week on the show, we're going to talk with Sargon Donabed, the author of a great book called Reforging a Forgotten History, Iraq and the Assyrians in the 20th Century. Sargon's work focuses on the excluded histories of Assyrian people, and that might seem like kind of a strange thing to talk about on a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics, but we're going to try to contextualize why, in fact, it isn't, and why it's actually really important to talk about on, a, on this exact podcast, um, and to sort of bring into the orbit of people on the left. So initially, we got an email from a new friend of ours named Maya. Uh, she's an Assyrian who writes from a pr progressive perspective. Um, she has a really great blog that we'll link in the show notes, but you can find it at ninwa.home.blog. So she sent us a bunch of really great resources and a link to a blog that she wrote about the persecution of Assyrian Christians that's called uh, WANA Christianity and Western Leftism. The, the uh, acronym, or acronym is uh, West Asian North African Christianity. So she says in the blog, and we'll talk through it a little bit here just to kind of set up uh, a very long interview uh, with Sargon, uh, but she says in that post that Assyrians have been ignored by the left and politicized by the right, and that creates a, a really big problem. And in light of Maya's email, we're going to try to work through the problem as she presents on her blog just really briefly and then go and go to uh, Sargon for this deeper historical perspective. Uh, before we do that, we want to encourage you at the top here to read her blog yourself. It's pretty short and straightforward. Uh, and the post is, like, embedded in a lot of other neat things that she writes, so genuinely an interesting person to be following. And uh, she also has a Patreon at patreon.com slash ninwa. We'll link all that stuff in the show notes, so um, you can find it there as well. Uh, but let's dive right in here. Matt, uh, what really stuck out to you about this post? Yeah, there's so much. It's a huge perspective that, like, yeah, it's completely lost on me um, until she sent it to us. So, again, super grateful that she did. Uh, so the post starts off like this and kind of uh, encapsulates the problem here this way. Uh, so she writes, West Asia and North Africa is ethnically and religiously diverse. However, the region is often discussed in a homogenous manner. Many people believe that West Asia and North Africa is populated only by Arab Muslims and is often referred to as the, quote, Arab world or Muslim world. These beliefs and narratives continue the erasure of other ethnic, religious, and indigenous groups in the region and strips them of any agency. So she starts kind of setting up this problem for us um, 
doing something that I love. I mean, I, I'm a person who has uh, read a lot of sort of like ethnic studies and uh, decolonial theory. So this thing that she's kind of setting up here is super interesting to me. Like, how have we, you know, who are these people that we've forgotten? Um, and then she goes on to explain, though, um, that the only notable and recent coverage of uh, West Asia and North Africa Christians by progressive outlets, most notably are like Think Progress and Vox, there's some stuff from them, is the June detention of over 100 Iraqis, most of whom were Christian, uh, by ICE in Michigan. As expected, uh, this coverage is mostly distorted by a partisan narrative of, you see, the right wing doesn't care about you. So um, I guess what's so interesting to me about the way she's framing this problem and the way she's kind of explaining it is that um, being sort of in like the the bubble that is, you know, my sort of Protestant corner of it is that I hear people talk about uh, Christians in Iraq kind of a lot. Um, like my church, um, they they had they were supporting missionaries to Iraq for this like short, this period of time, um, trying to like convert people, and like that was kind of the context in which I heard it, and I think that really turned me off to a lot of these ideas, um, or even like to kind of understand who these people in Iraq were. Um, because it's like, uh, you know, through this like very evangelical lens. But uh, as um, as Maya puts it, though, like there's a lot more going on here than I think that my church would let me know or probably my church even does know or even like the media narratives of the left or the right in the United States would let you know that there are um, a diverse group of people um, in these regions and they deserve our attention because of, um, well, I mean, because they deserve our attention because they're people, but, um, also because they face persecution every day. Yeah, that's right. And there's a lot of really interesting things too, that Maya uh, points out here and elsewhere about how I think leftists are sort of reticent to be interested in Assyrians, uh, and especially to take, take the Assyrian people up as sort of a, a cause or, or to try to understand them on their own terms. And Sargon talks about this too, but the, the reticence stems from a, a worry about being Islamophobic or by pointing out the way in which people suffer in, in regions that are uh, predominantly Muslim or have a, a large Muslim hegemony. The, I think the assumption of many people on the left is that, well, if you start um, kind of paying attention to Christians there and, and giving that a, uh, a real sort of weight in your politics, you sort of inadvertently fuel these Islamophobic um, uh, fears that, that are real in places like the U.S. and Canada, but are, are not uh, necessarily stoked by people really understanding Assyrians on their own terms by any stretch, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it's a really, really powerful and, and important point, and May makes it really well, so I encourage everyone to read it a little longer, uh, read the post in full, that is. Um, but I want to uh, read a little bit more about what she says here. The media and their audiences should care about us on our own terms, us being Assyrians, outside of Western left versus right paradigms. Pay attention to us as Assyrians and minority Christians rather than addressing us as partisan props to confirm convenient narratives. The void left by Western leftists is filled by right-wingers who acknowledge us for their reactionary agendas. Their interest in our cause is too often predicated solely on the fact that we are Christian and then used to justify racism and xenophobia. Because of the dire situation for West Asian North African minorities, a desperation caused by decades of dismissal, mere acknowledgement is enough to acquire Assyrian support, and more importantly, Assyrian votes for right-wing parties and politicians. In a Western sociopolitical context, this susceptibility to right-wing lip service is only solidified by the aforementioned commentary, or lack thereof, from liberals and leftists. And I think, again, I mean, that just sort of really drives home the point uh, that not only are um, Assyrians a people who deserve to be understood on their own terms, but they are sort of uh, driven into the the seemingly open arms of the right 
because the right is is at least interested in them, even if it's in for their for their own purposes or kind of cynically interested. Uh, and Maya is encouraging us to think that you know th- there's no reason that that has to be the case, and it, it sort of stems from a lack of the left being willing to really engage these Syrian people on their on their own terms and uh, provide some points of contact and reach out and organize that community that. Um, deserves to to sort of be heard and and, and have a, a seat at the table of of doing politics and making a, a better world. Yeah, I'm really convicted. I think by what Maya says though about the ways that um, I guess Christians in general, but like right wing Christians specifically, have um, used the Assyrians or just like Christians in the Middle East uh, for their own sort of political ends. I think about um, I don't know if if y'all have ever seen it, but um, one of like the one of the common sort of symbols or like, um, yeah, one, one of the common symbols that you might see if you're in a, a, an extremely Christian world is like the Arabic letter for the uh, for N, which is like sort of to denote uh, solidarity with the persecuted Christians of the Middle East um, or the, you know, West Asia uh, area. But um, it's, it's used for, you know, completely political ends and not kind of understanding them as people or, you know, understanding them or only, only having an interest in them because they are Christians or something. And I think that's... Uh, that should be uh, very um, troubling to us. Yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly right. Um, so, I mean, Sargon is going to do a lot of work uh, just in a minute here, um, kind of helping us to understand who these Syrian people are, how they sort of get factored in or don't get factored in to both academic and popular uh, understandings of what happens in in the region of Iraq in particular, but also sort of more broadly, which I think is really, really genuinely useful. Um, but I think that one just really important preface is to go back and uh, read Maya's blog as a, as a really important setup, um, especially for how leftists can hopefully be better at thinking this stuff through and kind of encourage us to, to do a lot more homework um, on our own. So encourage everybody to check that out as maybe like a preface or an epilogue, I guess, if you don't want to take a break uh, from listening. <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, hope to see a lot more from May in the future. So whenever we invite authors on the show, we ask them to do like a quick elevator pitch for their book or their essay. Um, with some people, it's a very long elevator ride all the way to the very, very top floor. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit about Reforging a Forgotten History and what it's about and uh, what did you hope to accomplish with it? Um, sure. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on the show. Um, I appreciate it and I, I look forward to these questions, although I, I'll try to answer them to the best of my ability. So. You know, the book Reforging a Forgotten History, uh, I'm trying to, it's, it's pretty funny because I'm starting to write elevator pitches for fantasy novels that I'm writing, and uh, it's a whole different ballgame for an academic work. So re- essentially with Reforging a Forgotten History, my, my thought was to, to offer uh, the reader an insight into a brief history of the Assyrian people, who very few people know about, um, and to show the essentialness of the Assyrian people to a wider audience in a larger world. So even beyond just simply knowing who and what they are, um, but also the, the essentialness of, of how they participate in the uh, Middle East at large, but also in the world at large, um, and the commonalities they have with other communities um, and, and have had throughout their history. So that's sort of the general idea. That was the, that would be the general elevator pitch that I would I would tell to people who knew very little about um, 
who and what the Assyrians were, uh, but really trying to make visible a, a, a sort of unknown entity in, in, in this, in this com- people, in this community, and to offer it to a, an audience who just is quite unfamiliar with that. And um, I think people tend to, to view all this as, um, you know, slight, slight par- portions of the Middle East and Middle Eastern history that they've heard about or something from ancient history or from biblical history. And I think what, um, what I've tried to do is to, to take those maybe uh, tidbits that, or sound bites that people have had over the years and, and put it into a context so that people, uh, the reader especially, or the readers, can take a step back and, and place the Assyrian situation, the Assyrian predicament in question into the larger context of, uh, context of, of the historical record of the Middle East um, and the world as a whole, especially in the 20th century. But also, um, I have to admit, there's a second part here. And I promise the elevator pitch was done like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> this is just me talking. Um, the the other piece of it was to was to show that, and and I argued this in the the sense of what I I couldn't think of a better name for it, but um, pan and historicism, sort of in the I, I stole a religious studies concept of uh, you know pan and theism, um, and and utilized it in the um, uh, sorry about that, utilized it in the sense of seeing a larger, you know, the, the story of history um, uh, or reality, uh, the paradigm of, of existence, to be larger and, and um, uh, sort of uh, so too difficult for us to understand as a whole, um, but that every small piece that we learn about, that we, that we uh, are able to, to, in a sense, research and learn about, um, it allows us to have a more fully vivid view of the totality of history understanding we'll never have the full picture but you know this assyrian story uh this particular narrative of assyrians in iraq for instance helps us to have yet a a a, a better piece like uh, sort of fill in pieces of the puzzle um and so that was my idea was to say you know this is my contribution to um the world, uh, uh, you know, human history, but let's say more than human history, um, and moving in a particular direction to say, yes, other communities belong here, individual stories belong here, and the more pieces we have, um, the more bright, vivid uh, our, our, our history is, the historical record is. So that was the other reason for doing it. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad that you were able to say something about your methodology, too, because in addition to you, I think, accomplishing that goal of introducing the Assyrian people and, and that history to at least the two of us who had no idea uh, really about um, how to think about that or, or what to think about it, um, the way that you try to parse all this stuff out is is genuinely interesting on its own sort of merits, and, and you make some suggestions in the book that you could sort of do this for this sort of pan and historical uh, method for a number of other really complicated narratives and stories, and I, I hope that people do. Um, it is really fascinating. Uh, your introduction gives us a, a brief introdu- uh, sort of understanding, that is, of the Assyrian people, and, and especially their history in Iraq. Um, could you summarize a little bit of that for our listeners, uh, many of whom, like we were just saying, have never heard of Assyrians, and then also maybe say a little bit about why it's important to think through that history and geography, you know, what's the reason for, uh, for choosing this, um, story to kind of make, uh, available to a broader audience? Uh, sure. Yeah, I absolutely can do that. So, uh, if we 
take a look at the the Assyrian people. First and foremost, the the Assyrians are a people that are native to what is essentially northern Mesopotamia and its environs. So if you think about what is today's um, northern Iraq, uh, the northeast of Syria, the northwest of Iran, uh, and the southeast of Turkey, that's essentially where the Assyrian people have found themselves off and on for the greater part of really, you know, five, 6,000 years. So, so it's a long, long history of, um, of a people of a community that, you know, and, and they've certainly moved around. I mean, people assume that people stay in one spot for forever and, and, uh, you know, many people do, they don't necessarily go too far. Uh, but even within that territory, there was always frequent, um, uh, migrations back and forth. So, um, the Assyrians are, I, I always try to explain it as they are definitely an indigenous people. They don't have, there is no country today, no, no legal national, you know, uh, entity that is the state of Assyria. Of course, the state of Syria and the name of the state of Syria is obviously borrowed from the, the, the ancient uh, Assyrian empire. So it's, it's used today, but it's confusing because people assume that you know, there's a there's a connection, and and the vast majority of people living in the state of Syria today would not espouse uh, Assyrian cultural heritage at all. You know, and uh, although there are many Assyrians who do live in Syria, um, although of course that's becoming a smaller and smaller number as um, as the years pass. So uh, Assyrians are an indigenous people, native people to to Mesopotamia, um, to the Middle East. Um, arguably, have the longest continuous um, living culture of, of, of most of the groups, but perhaps the oldest one, I mean, uh, continuous, uh, culture. And, and, and by that, I mean, you know, language, uh, folklore, art, all those traditions sort of wrapped together in, in, into culture. Uh, and they are today, I mean, a truly transnational people because they're divided within these different countries, but they're also divided, uh, you know, further out than the, than the four countries that I mentioned. Um, there are Assyrians in Jordan and Lebanon um, who left as refugees from from other places, ended up in these countries. Some have been there for a generation or two. Uh, there are Assyrians pretty much anywhere in the globe you wish to visit. There are probably some Assyrians somewhere around there in one of the towns or, or villages, um, pretty much anywhere you can think of. So uh, today, there's a largely it's a largely um, diaspora people. The Assyrians live predominantly outside of what their home territory or territories um, have been historically. Uh, they speak a language that is uh, in the two major dialects, the two major dialects uh, of Assyrian. Uh, one is usually termed Surith, um, uh, you know, for the, the people themselves. The, the, the reference in, in their own language would be Surith in the uh, Eastern dialect and the Western dialect. They use the term Surayth. It's actually the exact same word. It's just a slightly different pronunciation. Um, and the there are distinctions in the two dialects, but uh, the language is essentially the same. Um, it has roots that go all the way back to uh, grammatically. It's it's very much uh, what what's considered uh, an Aramaic language in its roots. Um, again, grammatically speaking, but it has a heavy Akkadian influence as well. Um, and, and a cultural Mesopotamian influence uh, on the Aramaic language. So, um, you know, it's not 
people tend to think it's the the you know Galilean Aramaic or something of of the first century, and it's it's really not. It's a very it's a it's a Mesopotamian language, and it is, and the reason that Assyrians call it Assyrian today is because it is an Assyrian language. In essence, it's the language of the culture of of the people in that region. So it's heavily influenced by that. Um, by, by the actual context of where, where it was used, um, in the sense of American English, you know, if that makes sense, you know, American English, Australian English, um, you know, the English in, in, in the UK, I mean, all of these are slightly different. Um, Scots English is, is distinct in that sense as well. So, you know, it, it has a very native quality to it, um, rather than, you know, uh, as Aramaic was the lingua franca, the entire uh, territory at one point until the advent of Arabic. So in the Near East, you had Aramaic spread throughout in different communities and different people speaking it. So, um, you know, the, the, the Assyrians also are predominantly Christian um, historically. Uh, and I'm probably going to get myself into some trouble saying this because I'm, I'm sure some of the people who see the Christian part of their heritage to be the most. Um, uh, I don't want to I don't know really how to put this, but but probably the most prominent part of their heritage, maybe um, they may not necessarily see this as, uh, in their mind as, as particularly true, but there are many Assyrians who, in, in the same sense of Armenians, uh, there's a term that's used, especially post-Ottoman um, Ottoman Empire, Ottoman, the genocide against the um, various groups in the, uh, particularly the Armenians, the Assyrians, and the Greeks in the Ottoman Empire. The term that's sometimes used is, is uh, crypto-Armenians, at least in the Armenian case, and it's started to be used recently among the Assyrians as well. So these crypto Assyrians, people who, um, you know, lived in, in particular regions and over time were, some of them were probably originally Christian. Many of them were converted, um, and retained some sense of who and what they were, both their, their, their cultural heritage and their identity. Um, but also maybe, maybe a little bit of their, their language, maybe a little bit of, um, their original, uh, religious identity too, but for all intents and purposes, they are, um, you know, practicing Muslims and in, in certain places in Turkey, many, many people have come out and said, you know, I am, or my ancestors are, were, uh, Assyrians. So that's been a, um, a more recent turn, but, um, it's an interesting one because it, it further, uh, in a sense complicates things, but it complicates things in, in a good way because it, it, shows that Assyrian is not a sectarian and has never been a sectarian identity. Um, you know, people would assume that it's, it's a church or it's a religious community and it can be, I mean, these are all different pieces of, of identity, but, um, it's much broader than that. It's, it's, it has a real um, uh, umbrella existence to it and many things are sort of captured within it, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. That historical aspect and sort of like the complication of the, the geography and the sort of, you know, um, language all helps us kind of, I think, get like a, a better understanding who the Assyrians are and I guess like what they, um, why it's important to know who mm -hmm. they are. But uh, before we get into more about like, you know, who, uh, what does the history mean for us today? Uh, I want to, I want to um, ask you a question about one more sort of theoretical distinction that you make in your sure. book that I think is really cool. So um, also in your, in your introduction, uh, you make a really helpful distinction that emphasizes the importance um, of another scholar who I think a lot of other folks in cultural studies, religious studies read a lot, um, Edward Said. Um, so uh, you're specifically offering like uh, 
kind of an intervention on some of Said's work, especially Orientalism. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to read this quote and then you can comment on it, I suppose. So you say, um, unsurprisingly, Edward Said's Orientalism creates a powerful dualistic worldview and explicates a variety of issues from a constructivist viewpoint. But here the Assyrians still do not figure. They are neither Arab nor principally Muslim, yet Said's framework for the attitude of how people define themselves and others is pertinent. In essence, Assyrians function as the third world of the third world, and Assyrian issues are thus no longer real history and have been relegated to a fourth world identity issue. While misunderstandings of the West have led to Assyrian overshadowing in recent years, misunderstandings of the East have done likewise for a lengthier period. In other words, the Orient to otherizes sorry. The Orient to otherizes the Assyrians. So uh given like this given your additional explanation how can including Assyrian people into our understanding of, you know, like uh, a pan-end historical view or, you know, just real history help us rethink the hierarchy of like knowledge production? I haven't read that quote since I wrote it, I think. Uh, so it's, it's been a <laughs> while. Uh, thank you for reminding me of it. So It's a good quote. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Um, sometimes you, you surprise yourself with what you're able to accomplish when you're when you're writing, you know, you're sort of in the midst of um, in this creative process. I do, I do definitely still think that this is valid. I, I mean, I don't think I, anything has changed. I, I essentially, I mean, if it makes sense for people, for the readers, um, and for the listeners of the podcast to understand, let me say that to sort of, to, to, to make, to simplify this, what, what I meant was that, and, um, and I'll also refer to an, a, a short article in perspectives, um, the uh, AHA uh, newsletter that myself and, and uh, Daniel Tower and myself wrote a couple of years ago, well, no, about a year ago, maybe, um, on indigeneity, the issue of indigeneity in Assyrians. So uh, essentially, I think what, what happens is that in most cases, and this is something I deal with as a professor here uh, in the United States, in the, the quote unquote West, if we're going to use some of these sort of uh, monoliths, is that in most cases, the the viewpoint, so the, the perspective, the lens that is used to look at different peoples and communities um, tends to be the large, the, the biggest problem in understanding these communities in a quote, quote unquote, authentic fashion, if, if, one, if we want to use that term. So what I mean by that is, you know, when we, we look at... Um, the Middle East, people will say, oh, well, you know, we need to look at it from a different lens. Uh, or if we look at Middle Easterners or Middle Eastern communities, people say, let's look at it from not from a Western lens or a Western gaze, but perhaps from a different lens. So how do how does one do that? Well, we need to to, to look at it from you know, utilize an Eastern gaze or um, some other type of um, viewpoint. But what happens with that is that Again, these are sort of monolithic understandings. And so when we have a, uh, a monolithic understanding, we have so many issues that actually cause more problems, I think, than we originally had. So what Saeed did was try to express, in my understanding, um, that basically we've created a dichotomy between the East and the West, um, and there is a dichotomy to an extent. Uh, because of how we've created it, and people understand this dichotomy, this sort of polarization, um, by utilizing their lens. You know, uh, the East is orientalized from a Western gaze, right? And that's everything from 
thinking about how people used to view the I always use the the the, the sort of the over sexualization the 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 fetish fetishization of the um ottoman harems does that make sense like that that sort of mm-hmm. this sort of romantic view of and also you know a little bit like the the noble savage sort of the the, the sense that um or the view of 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 native peoples of the uh, united states you know american indian uh, nations uh the sort of that that noble savage idea that that existed so it's it's obviously problematic and and so people then started saying well we need to look at the these middle eastern communities um from let's say an eastern gaze so people started looking at it and saying oh you know we we're we're not remembering to talk about x y and z and uh started discussing these other communities the problem is that groups like the assyrians um so when the west views the east <laughs> the west will sometimes see the east and stereotype the east um, especially the Middle East, the Near East, however you want to term it. And frequently people will say, oh, um, this is what it is. Uh, the East is Arab and it's Muslim, right? We always hear that. This is the Arab, quote unquote, Arab world that people talk about. So what does that do? Well, that then creates a, you know, a mindset where people see the Middle East as Arab Muslim, you know, from a Western perspective. Now, there are all sorts of things that come along with that. And of course, people will look at it very negatively because they view the, the term Muslim negatively. Um, and, and that's a hu- whole issue in and of itself. And that, that's a lot of what, what Saeed is discussing. The problem is, is that what that does is it, it sort of, uh, the view itself neglects to see that there are, there's a the sort of a, a multifaceted uh, Middle East that people don't want to look at in the same way that there's a multifaceted West, right? I mean, the West isn't, it's not the United States, right? It's not just McDonald's. It's not just Starbucks. Um, there's a lot more that goes into, you know, it, people will say, I, I remember during the, the age of um, um, George W. Bush, where traveling, you know, traveling to certain areas, people would say, oh, is, is George Bush, you know, you voted for George Bush. That was this whole, you know, discussion of politics in the United States. And we don't like George Bush in different places. There was always this discussion. And, and, and very frequently, people living in the United States would say, well, uh, if someone didn't agree with him would say, well, I didn't vote for him. And no, I didn't, I don't necessarily agree with him just because, you know, that particular person is president um, and espouses certain ideas and certain views of even Christianity, for instance, that doesn't mean everyone in the United States is a reflection of that particular person. Um, but some of them are, I mean, and it is the, it is a reflection of, of some people. So there is that, that issue. The problem is, as I as stated with the Assyrians, the Assyrians don't even figure in. So when the West is viewing the East, it's viewing this Arab Muslim world. And so either it is, it is demonizing them or it's romanticizing them. Um, uh, maybe to some extent it has some objective, slightly quote unquote objective view, but the reality is, is that all views are pretty much subjective. So, so we tend to go on one extreme or the other. Now the Assyrians don't figure in. So people will then say, well, well, what's the other way of looking at it? Well, then look at it from an Eastern gaze. So the Eastern gaze will then look at the Assyrians or look at itself. And from within the East, um, you would assume that, you know, within the East, people would would say, oh, well, we are also a, a multifaceted, multicultural society uh, with various ethnic and religious groups. Um, and that is the case of the Middle East. But the reality is, is that the view of the Middle East on itself, um, or of itself, I should say, is very, very narrow. And because of that, you know, the Assyrians don't figure in there either. Uh, and the Assyrians don't exist uh, 
in any country in the Middle East as a distinct ethnic cultural group. I mean, they, they don't exist anywhere. There's not, there's not one, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, they're not actually, I mean, there's places where they exist as a religious sect. Um, they're mentioned as a religious group, as a religious sect, but not as a distinct, you know, ethnic or ethno-cultural or ethno-religious, however you want to term it, uh, community or people. And that's pretty telltale. I mean, you know, in the United States, we, we talk about uh, census and, 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 you know, um, all the different ways in which you can identify on a census. Uh, you know, in most countries, the Assyrians haven't been able to even do that. So, so this is kind of the problem with, with or this has been the problem with Saeed um, and the way in which, you know, I talk to my friends, I say, when, when uh, my colleagues will say, oh, you know, please, and, and I have a lot of global self scholars uh, as friends who will say, oh, please do something on, on, on the Middle East. We'd love to hear more about the Middle East. Oh, could you do something on, for instance, Muslim women in America? And so, of course, that's, that's not my focus area at all. Um, and it's a whole different area of, of scholarship, which there are plenty of people that are more versed in that, 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 that could deal with that. But, um, I try to express it by saying, no, what I do is kind of like what, uh, imagine you guys doing, um, talking about communities or working on communities and discussing those communities, um, in the United States, for instance, and talking about the history of the United States, um, from a white European perspective. You wouldn't do that, right? You would talk about, especially nowadays, people start to think more about, oh, well, there's a, a large portion of black America that was part and parcel of this, uh, what became the United States um, and the whole issue of slavery. I mean, that entire period of time that tends to be neglected, only talked about, you know, in the terms of, in terms of, of slavery and the problems with slavery. But, you know, these are this is an entire culture of people or various cultures of people that came here uh, that are very different from um, you know, that European, the, the sort of the Western European, uh, standpoint. And then you have, of course, even older than that, you have, uh, native communities, you have indigenous communities and nations. I mean, many, many nations that have lived here. Would you talk about the history of the United States without including them? Of course not. No, no global South scholar, no, no, you know, let's say left scholar, uh, uh or left espousing scholar would ever say that. So what's interesting is, well, then why would you assume the Middle East to be white European? You know, it's, it's almost mm -hmm. like it's, it's, it's that same issue. And so what my worry was that it, this is kind of the same way it's viewed. You know, once we say, oh, let's be inclusive of the Middle East, the inclusivity of, what, of, of quote unquote, the Middle East is still a very narrow view of the Middle East. It's still a very, you know, it's. Um, it's using the Western gaze for the Middle East and to say, oh, yes, yes, we understand you. You are um, you are neglected. We want to bring you into our discussion. We want to talk about you. We want to express your issues to the world. Um, but the, the 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 tertiary community, right, the secondary and the tertiary communities in the Middle East, those indigenous peoples still are not talked about, neither by the Western scholars, even by global style scholars to an extent, Um and, and, and not by the Easterners themselves. I mean, very infrequently do, um, do Assyrians fit into the history of the Middle East. Um, I'll give the example of the Ba'ath Party that's in my book. You know, during the, the Ba'ath expansion, uh, the growth of, of Ba'athism in Syria and Iraq, um, the, the history texts that were written, even prior to the Ba'ath Party, I should say, going back far, even further, um, the history texts that were written and that then were implemented in the school system, I mean, talked about all the major peoples of the Middle East as basically coming out of the Arabian Peninsula. 
So what that did was sort of equate everyone with being essentially um, connected to the the Arab ethnicity, to being ethnically Arab, which was obviously hugely problematic for a, a great many people, and not to mention incorrect. But this type of of, of, of issue is just, I mean, you see it throughout the Middle East. We see it um, in education systems. Uh, it was it was in Iraq. It was in in Syria. Um, I don't know. I have to. I have to say. I I, I know things have changed in the Kurdish region uh, of Iraq recently, uh, where the texts are being rewritten. Um, but in the Kurdish region, for instance, there are texts that are being rewritten that show. Um, and now these are texts that Assyrian children are also reading, that show particular people in the Kurdish region, um, who historically speaking, um, committed crimes against the Assyrian community as heroes. Right. In the same way that when you're, you know, nation building, you create the, the sort of myth of the nation. Um, that's also happening right now in, in um, the Kurdistan region of Iraq. And so now young Assyrian children are reading the, these texts and they're being exposed to seeing certain people um, who, from the Assyrian standpoint, were, um, uh, you know, involved in, in, in mass killings or in, uh, in one case, one of them was involved in enslaving uh, many women and children now see that as, um, or at least they're being, they're being portrayed as heroes, um, uh, in, in the, in the educational system. And of course that, you know, that then influences children as they grow up and, and they begin to think things differently. So, you know, we, we haven't seen where that's going to go for the future, but, um, all of this is, is created by these worldviews. I mean, all of it is created by how, you know, Saidis mentality or, or, or this dichotomizing things. And, and I'm not saying it's just he, he did it. You know, he was noticing that other people had been doing it. But it, you know, it, it is problematic. And um, and that's why I did not want to go down that same path with my view. Yeah, uh, well, all that is a really helpful way, even so far, of just kind of setting up, like, the, uh, um, the general kind of problems around even the way in which Assyrian peoples can be understood or uh, sort of visible to um, the sort of global stage more broadly, uh, not just academically, but even popularly. And I mean, we're curious about that as both Matt and I are from the United States. I live in Toronto now, but uh, you know, like we grew up during the Iraq war and uh, not the kind of story that you usually hear on like uh, Fox News or CNN is about like what what's going on with the Syrians in that region that we're like actively in conflict with. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess, you know, could you, I want to combine a couple of questions here because I think they sort of go together. Um, you know, first of all, you've talked sort of academically about how Assyrians don't show up because of certain biases or prejudices, and maybe those are the same in um, popular culture, but maybe not. So perhaps you could say something about that. Why do Assyrians and other people in, in West Asian or, or Middle Eastern, however you want to put it, uh, that sort of region, uh, why are they usually outside the scope of kind of media narratives about what's going on there? Uh, and then Maybe sort of secondly, just talking about a, a specific sort of media narrative that happens uh, in the U.S., especially when we do hear something about Christians in Iraq, it's usually in the context of them being persecuted by Islamists um, or, you know, whatever. They're, they're the, the victims of terrorism. Uh, and, and these stories then get sort of transformed into these, these broader media stories that fuel public support for intervention or 
um, Islamophobia even in the U.S. and that kind of totally erases the whole um, complexity of what you're getting at here. So, uh, as someone with this really intimate knowledge of of the region, what's a better way that we in the U.S. or Canada or elsewhere can kind of think through these kinds of one-dimensional media narratives? So, first of all, the the narrative in which Assyrians don't even show up, and then secondly, the one in which uh, Assyrians become a, a sort of um, like. Uh, a, a piece on like a board game of uh, trying to sort out, you know, manufacturing consent for for uh, imperialism or something like that. Great question. Media plays a obviously a huge role, I and mean, so much of who and what we are today is based on, or, or or how we view ourselves and how young children react to things. I mean, everything's social media based right now, of course. So that is, it, it can be a huge boon to a, a community. Um, but it can also be hugely detrimental as we know. So, and also, you know, part of the problem is, is the assumption that social media or media and, and the attention of media, um, is, is a correct reflection of society. So there's a lot of stuff that, that I guess can be dealt with, with in, in this particular question. Um, first, the, the first question that you guys had about the sort of the, the lack of, um, if I'm correct, the lack of Assyrian or the lack of attention on Assyrians in general. That, that was the mm-hmm. first one, correct? So if I think about that, I mean, I think I, I wouldn't even be able to answer that without adding that second part, which is, you know, then why is the focus or when there is focus, it seems to be uh, on the persecution element. I, I think it's all wrapped together. In essence, the Assyrians serve and and because of their, you know, minoritized or let's say, excuse me, in this sense, I should say marginalized status um, in so many different facets uh, or different facets of being, let's say, uh, marginalized, the Assyrians can really just serve as a means to an end in the sense that if the story or the narrative of what's happening to Assyrians um, can drum up support, you know, popular support for, uh, um, for, uh, you know, uh, uh, intervention in a particular country or, or uh, nation state halfway across the globe that people know very little about, but it can be appealed to by stating that this is an ancient Christian sect um, with ties to the language of Jesus and, you know, creating this sort of, uh, again, this hugely romantic view of who and what the Assyrians are. And, and, and I'm probably not going to be the most popular person among many Assyrians by saying what I am, because, you know, many Assyrians count on that um, to, you know, drum up the attention so that, so that there is a focus on Assyrians. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, I do argue this in the text. I've, I've argued it many, many times, um, at conferences. And and that is that, you know, from a left perspective, I mean, the left does not generally talk about the Assyrians because, um, from a leftist perspective, again, there's more of this issue of, you know, uh, we don't want to demonize peoples, which is a, a good thing. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's about talking at least from in the case of the Middle East, talking about the problem of Islamophobia and trying to get people to understand that, you know, we're part of a larger world. And, um, these are, these are, uh, problematic ways in which we, we view each other and we don't want Islamophobia here and things like that. So because of that, the Assyrian narrative doesn't really, at least even, even the narrative of, of, Hey, these are persecuted people doesn't really fit into the to the leftist media push um it and it only fits into the right media push 
because of the Christian element, right? To appeal to sort of that baseline of like, let's say the American, you know, uh, sometimes people talk about it to the, you know, and I don't want to conflate these two or confuse these two, um, fundamentalist, uh, Christians, um, and evangelical Christians, um, because I, I know they, they are not necessarily the same. Um, and that's a problem in and of itself, but to sort of, to connect to, um, those larger groups to say, Hey, these are fellow Christians being persecuted. We need to focus on them. We need to help them. And so therefore we're going to have some kind of an intervention. I mean, of course they don't use that as the, the whole reason for the intervention, but it's a nice little piece to add on to it. Um, that, that piece of compassion or, uh, that touches, you know, uh, people's empathy gets people to sympathize and empathize with, with this community. But the reality is, is both of them are problematic, of course, right? So um, it's tied together in the sense that, uh, you know, from one side, they're not being mentioned because it doesn't fit into the narrative. From the other side, they're being mentioned because it does fit into the narrative, but it only fits into the narrative so far, and it only appeals to a certain type of person. And so for many Assyrians over the years, especially in the United States and in Canada, you know, I would see sort of the, especially the older generation would have a more, let's say, a, a conservative lean because they would think that, um, oh, well, at, at, the, at the very least, you know, the right of center media or the centrist and right of center media are at least talking about who and what we are and what's happening to our people, whereas sometimes from a, the, the leftist perspective, that's not even happening. So people were getting a little frustrated with that, um, especially an older generation who's seen probably far more persecution um, than, you know, those of us who've been one or two generations living in, let's say, the United States or in Canada or, or in, in other, let's say, in a Western European country like the UK or something like that. So, you know, the, there, there is this, this issue that, that's going to keep coming up. And, and of course, it, it, also, it also creates problems for the Assyrian identity because that then furthers the, this sort of um, all or nothing Assyrian Christian, Christian Assyrian, right? You have to attach those two terms together. You have to be an Assyrian. You have to be, to, to be an Assyrian, you have to be Christian. Um, and, and sort of in, in a, not, not vice versa, but, but these two pieces are absolutely, uh, tied together. And so then that leaves out, well, what about these other folks, as I had mentioned earlier, who, um, uh, are Muslim today, whether or not they were converted a hundred, 200, three, four, 500 years ago, do they, are they no longer Assyrian? Do they not, are they not allowed to be Assyrian? You know, how does that fit into it? So those are, those are real problems that, you know, the Assyrian community um, will have to deal with in the, in the near future. The problem is, though, the assumption, and I'll, and I'll add, attach this to that question, um, it leads to another issue, which is the assumption of people that they should somehow, they being the Assyrian community, people, the Assyrian people, should somehow be able to create a bulwark against this negativity um, and be able to work against it. The problem is, is that for most Assyrians, they're still living in survival mode. So in order to get to this sort of nuanced view of the world where everybody belongs, and I mean, I'm an animal rights activist. Um, I, uh, I'm finishing a, a, a master's of science degree in anthrozoology precisely because I love and view the world as a larger than human world. Um, and because of that, I'm deeply interested and invested in, um, in that viewpoint and that sort of radical 
although it's really not radical to me, but radical for perhaps many people, um, paradigm shift in our minds, in, in our culture, to look at this world as larger than just a human-based world with human concerns. Right? This, this, the anthropocentrism that's really sort of infected, I think, and caused a lot of problems in our world today, um, the, you know, the current environmental crisis, biodiversity crisis being chief among them. But for me to say that, to be sitting here and saying that, I think it's kind of a luxury. And for a lot of Assyrians, they don't have that. You know, if you're living in survival mode, uh, attempting to um, just find a, a place to eat and to survive in a in a system um, in a rentier state in a in an authoritarian regime, I mean these 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 things are 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 sort of secondary to just just being able to put food on the table for your family. And so the again, uh, you know, I remember during my defense, one of my one of my reviewers had said, you know, that was a spirited defense. And of course, if if Sargon being an Assyrian isn't going to talk about Assyrians, then who is? And I thought to myself, well, that's kind of unfair. You know, I mean, you're assuming that uh, the elitist world of academia, I mean, is is a is is or the Assyrians should be participating wholly in this elitist world where, you know, most Assyrians, as I said, are just trying to get by. You know, they haven't come out of survival mode fully yet. Um, and so to assume that, you know, this world that was basically created by people and families of people who didn't know what to do with their kids at some point, except send them on for further schooling, um, because they had the money to do so and they didn't have to do anything else. Again, you know, many of us were lucky. We came into it in a different way. Many of us, you know, those of us that are doing it, you know, like us are trying to make a difference and change things. But again, it was a luxury for us to get where we are in some way, you know, I'm not saying we didn't have to fight for it or didn't have to work hard for it. Um, but to assume that, you know, somebody who just lived through um, the destruction that was wrought by ISIS is somehow just going to say, well, you know, Assyrians don't really have a place in academia. If I don't do it, no one's going to do it. So I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go write the history of Assyrians. It, 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 it's probably not going to happen. Um, and, and, and by the same token, you know, you don't have Assyrians in media, right, to tell their own stories. So you, you just don't have them in these places. Um, that, that would make it easier for them to have a more balanced um, discussion of who and what they are, and also to, to be able to offer this to a larger audience. So really, again, the, to go back to your original questions, the two of them, um, they're tied together. And because Assyrians don't really have much say in it, they themselves are put into these two categories um, by the media and by what the media or how the media wants to view them. So that... Um, it, it, it's a problem. It's a problem, and it and it probably will continue to be an issue for, for quite some time, um, un until Assyrians, you know, uh, are able to insert themselves a little bit, uh, a little bit better, uh, stronger into these, into these different uh, avenues and and uh, forms of expression. So, and again, it's so much of it is dependent on the the issue of of um, moving past just basic survival. And I don't I don't know I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon in my lifetime or. Um, you know, the lifetime of my children, who knows? Yeah, that's a really helpful explanation. Um, it, it's such an interesting thing because, uh, I mean, the the history of the left in the United States, at least, is one that, um, is one that, like, journalism has been kind of important in a lot of different ways for kind of lifting up stories that other people might not have heard um, and making things known and kind of, like, shedding light to where persecution and oppression happens. Mm -hmm. But, um I think it's 
uh, I mean, based on what you said, and I think based on the blog that we talked about at the beginning of the show, um, it's clear that like the that has not happened. That there's sort of like a vacuum when it comes to uh, Assyrians uh, and like media coverage, or even like people just know about it, knowing about them. Our friend Maya, whose blog we uh, talked about earlier, she says that uh, the way media outlets talk about or don't talk about Assyrians makes it easier for Assyrians to identify with right wing movements. Uh, based on the fact that conservative outlets are usually the ones focusing on Christian oppression. Um, so if that's the case, <laughs> uh, do you think that there's like a, do you think that there's been a failure on the part of the left to engage and address this like sort of global persecution of Assyrians? And also, um, what can people who are on the left, but maybe just not only people who are on the left, uh, do to show types of solidarity with Assyrians? How can we improve ourselves? People, interestingly, people, the way I think about it sometimes is, um, <laughs> and the way we think about it is still dichotomized, right? This sort of left and right way of, of viewing the world. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, let's go with it now just because we've already kind of boxed ourselves into these ideas and these identities of, of being left and right. But you're absolutely right. I mean, this is part of the problem. You know, um, Dean and Matt, when you guys asked me to do this, I thought to myself, how, how am I going to come across to, to everybody who's going to listen to this and think, well, does he sound like he's, you know, on the left? Does he sound like he's on the right? Where, 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 do, where do we position this guy? Um, and, and I can tell you, you know, without a doubt in my mind, I don't think I fall into any category, and or at least I don't want to, because I find so many problems with with all these uh, these ways that we've sort of categorized ourselves, um, and and I think that the present situation in, in the United States. Um, can attest to that, the, the political situation at the very least, but also the social situation. Um, you know, I, I did my graduate studies in Toronto as well, so uh, I, I know the area well. I spent six, seven years in Canada and, and then moved back to the States. So um, I've had that experience of being somewhere else with, you know, uh, not a strict, uh, necessarily left and right view where you had various parties um, that could speak to the situation of, uh, of the country, uh, which I liked, I have to say, I really liked being able to, to look at it from, from more than just two perspectives, but it, it is a problem here in, in this country because when, when you are categorized as being on one side or the other, it then becomes sort of that pet project of that group. So I agree with, I agree absolutely with um, with Maya's uh, understanding that what at least in the case of the Assyrians, because the Assyrian, the, and, and I, I mean it's really the Christian thing, so it's it's really not the Assyrian thing because at the end of the day, <laughs> I mean how can I say this more blatantly? Um, fairly fundamentalist Christians who read Old Testament scripture are probably not going to like the Assyrians. Um, <laughs> From that perspective, if they're going to read the historical texts um, and look at the situation of, of, you know, the Assyrians being sort of the the uh, the strongest culture in the in the region, the, 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 the you know, at least political culture at the time um, and in many cases having conflicts with um, the kingdom of, uh, of Judea and Israel, um, you know, I, I, I don't think most. And in fact, I, I know most uh right-leaning uh, Christians, especially on the fundamentalist side, uh, definitely don't like the Assyrians and see them as a bad or evil group of people. Right? They, they villainize them. Um, and that in, in and of itself is a huge problem. Um, if anyone wants to read more about how the Assyrians are treated negatively there, I, I suggest um, Michael Mann's work. 
on the the dark side of democracy. Really great, two or three great quotes in there about how the Assyrians are sort of demonized, uh, villainized um, from the perspective of, of of people reading into the uh, reading too much uh, into the the um, you know the the Jewish the old Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. You know, the, essentially the histories. So it's it's a it's an it's an interesting piece. I definitely suggest people look at it. But you know, when it becomes the pet project again of of the right, right? When the the Christian thing, quote unquote, is a project of the right in the United States, and the Assyrians are being persecuted because of their Christianity, which is not the only reason that they've been persecuted or have or are currently persecuted, but that is a reason. Um, and because of that, that seems to be the pet project of the right. And the left does not like that. Um, in, in fact, I've, I've again met with scholars who've said to me, well, you know, the issue of minorities in the Middle East, or just, you know, sort of a, on a broader scale, the issue of my, minorities on the, in the Middle East has, is an issue of Western intervention and Western imperialism. And the West has always been supportive of minorities. And I still remember uh, confronting a, a, a scholar, a fairly, you know, well-known, well-renowned scholar. And I said, uh, you know, is that is that really the case? Do you really feel that? And 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 he said, absolutely, yes, uh, I do believe that. I think that is the case. And I said, I don't, I don't really think that that's the case. So, well, give me an example. And I said, well, the Assyrians haven't done too well um, with Western interventions. Um, in fact, I would say none of the the minoritized peoples or the marginalized peoples in the Middle East, the quote unquote minorities, if you want to talk about them as such, um, have done well. Like, can you give me an example? And and I remember the the scholars thinking and thinking and thinking and, and not coming up with an example. I said, I mean, you, you can't give me an example. I mean, they're not doing well, certainly not in the Middle East um, and arguably not outside the Middle East, although probably better out, outside than in. Um, and I realized, and, and, and he was interestingly a very strong leftist scholar who was all about um, uh, the, the boycott and divestment of the state of Israel and, um, you know, uh, certainly understood... Um, and was in, interested in uh, working on Palestinian rights. And and I thought, that's fascinating. So, he, you know, he doesn't seem to think that in the case of, of that group, it seems like it works okay. But in the case of the other groups, it doesn't seem like it works as well. And so, you know, why would he be supportive of the Palestinian movement, but not of, of let's say, the Assyrians or Armenians or Yazidis or some groups like that? And... Um, and I do think at the very least with the, the quote unquote groups that are seen as per, as first and foremost Christian, like the Assyrians, Armenians are slightly different only because they have a nation state. And so the, the way the media portrays them is a little bit different, um, but it's similar. But the Assyrians are seen first and foremost as a Christian group. And so because of that, they're, they're just not figured in um, into the leftist discourse. And I don't know, I don't know if there's a way to, to, to fix that, um, except for to you know, for, for Assyrians to do more of these types of podcasts uh, and, and to talk about the fact that these aren't left and right issues. These are issues of humanity. These are issues of, um, of, of shared human culture. Um, they're issues of compassion and ethics and ethical treatment of people um, that need to be discussed. I mean, the same way that I think I, I don't have any idea why, you know, animal issues of animal rights, and animal protection and wildlife preservation and conservation are issues of the left. That to me makes absolutely no sense. They're not left issues. They're just, they're issues that, you know, should be the concern of everyone and everything. I, I, I have a very difficult time seeing these as issues that need to be dichotomized for one reason or another. Um, and so I always try to remind people, you know, these don't have to become 
I mean, they're always political, but they don't have to be politicized for a particular side. They don't they don't need to be um, they don't need to do that um, and they don't need to become that. But I do think um, I do think that uh, the way in which Assyrians can talk more about that in the future and also engage the let's say again to go back to the quote unquote left the, the media of the left is to show even the Assyrians themselves to, to work more on solidarity movements. Um, I would definitely suggest that the Assyrians themselves, um, from an academic perspective, but also from just from a social movement, social justice perspective, to do more work with with other groups that that have dealt with um, uh, major pieces of persecution. And I would say that you know they should work with um, especially indigenous groups. I'm, I'm a big proponent. I've always been a proponent of them working with indigenous groups and, and native groups, both in the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere. And I actually know a few scholars in particular who are working with them. Um, I know people that worked on uh, that were part of the Stand with Standing Rock uh, movement, um, trying to show solidarity with with those groups. Um, and I think if if they can reach out and and do that i mean the, the sort of the palestinian movement has been has been very successful in showing that solidarity especially with and and i would say with uh, with african american um uh, movement with uh, african american solidarity too so you do see a lot of connection with palestinians um and african americans so that that definitely is a is an example of 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 things that assyrians can do but uh, by the same token you know the persecuted communities um jewish communities palestinian communities um I grew up in an area that was probably Irish Catholic, and we talked frequently about the persecution of the Irish um, and the treatment of the Irish over the years by 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 the English, but also just in general in Europe, um, the trials and tribulations of the Irish um, and, and of other Celtic peoples. I mean, that's always been something that I've understood a little bit more than some of the other connections because I grew up with predominantly uh, people of, of Irish descent. So that has a place in, in, in my heart and in my understanding. And there's a lot that, that can be done there to show solidarity, to show connections with the people. And so the Assyrians have to take a bit of that work on themselves. I don't know that it's going to be easy or that they can do it immediately, but they definitely need to work on it. Um, and it would be great for those groups also to try to reach out to kind of look beyond the, um, the, 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 the sort of the stigma of Assyrians as, uh, or at least part of the stigma as, you know, some of these vocal, some of the vocal groups being attached to, uh, right-wing media, um, and really see this as, again, as a human issue. This is an issue that goes beyond left and right, um, and these people can form solidarity movements with others. And, you know, sometimes it might just be in another group or community coming to the Assyrians and trying to make a connection. Because, again, as I said, remember, in so many ways, they're, they're still dealing with um, issues of survival. So sometimes um, some movement from the outside is also helpful. Yeah, that's really helpful, um, both on, on both scores, just kind of talking about, uh, you know, the uh, the role Syrians might have, but also, especially for us, more importantly, the role that uh, us non-Assyrians have. I, I have to admit, when Maya has been uh, extremely gracious with us trying to help us put all this together, and uh, she had asked me, you know, what is your, what are the sort of leftist movements that you're a part of do with respect to Assyrians, because I do live in Toronto, which is, you know, a, a, it prides itself on being the most multicultural city in the world. And uh, I had to admit, you know, shamefully that I don't really know. <laughs> it's not to say that some of the, the people I'm involved with aren't doing that, but I, if they are, I, I have no idea, which is kind of a, uh, a telling factor in itself. Um, well, you also have I'm, the issue of probably doing your work as well. I mean, doing your, your scholastic work, your, your scholarly stuff, and that's probably not 
you know, I mean, sometimes certain things take precedent, and I totally understand that. And I think that's something people need to understand, too. Just like for the Assyrians, certain portions of their life has, have taken precedent over, you know, getting their story out to the media sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's easier to, to bury the stories than to deal with the pain of, of, of thinking about them. Or at least that's what many people say to themselves, you know. Um, of course, with modern studies of, you know, telling your stories and catharsis and stuff like that, we're starting to change that a little bit, but still, I mean, these, these things are, they're there and they're, they've been there for a reason. It's, it's allowed people to, to cope with their situation and sort of continue. Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, that is true. And I appreciate that, uh, that you're throwing me a bone there. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Though, uh, well. I will say, uh, that doesn't really seem to hold me back, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, so I, I do want to say, though, because we are a podcast about Christianity and, and leftist politics, um, one thing that kind of jumped out uh, reading your book was the connections that you drew uh, between Assyrians and the Iraqi Communist Party. And, uh, you, I mean, you talk a little bit about how Assyrians, including the former secretary of the party, Yusuf Salman Yusuf, related to the Iraqi Communist Party. Um, what connections there are there between Assyrians and communists in the history of Iraq? And do you think there's any interesting lessons there maybe for Christians and the left today. I mean, I totally understand. I th and I think you're right to point out that this is an issue that transcends uh, left-right uh, dichotomies. I mean, these are just human beings who, who need to be, um, you know, understood on their own terms. Uh, but nevertheless, just in terms of our own specificity, uh, what do you see kind of emerging there as, as something that's really intriguing or, or useful or something that would be um, genuinely important for, for us on the left to kind of go back and, and maybe mine for some more tools or something? like that sure yeah the so the the i mean the issue of egalitarianism is of course the the big issue right and and so first and foremost again let me clarify that you know the communist party for for any listener when when they talk about the communist party in iraq um and and i'm not an expert on the communist party of iraq so let me say that as well but the communist party and the communist parties of the middle east um they they, in a sense, were vastly distinct from what you would think of as, you know, communism as it was um, in, in under the Soviets or, you know, uh, under Stalinist control. And, and, and that's, you know, again, as, as we know, I mean, I don't want to split hairs, but the reality is, is, you know, communism as a as a um, as a concept versus Stalinism as it was practiced or uh, uh, you know, uh, Chinese communism today and in the sense of an, an, an oligarchical structure. I mean, th these are the problems with, you know, when people say, oh, you know, I'm going to throw this out and say, Bernie's a socialist. Ah, socialism is like communism or so, you know, nationalist socialist. That sounds like Nazism. And, you know, and people just go through these these buzzwords and then they elicit some idea and some people go crazy about these issues. And the reality is, is that the Iraqi Communist Party was a, a party that at least when it was started from its very inception and, and, and probably at least to the best of my knowledge and from my research, the first person that really spent time bringing these ideas to Iraq um, was a man by the name of uh, Petros Vasili or Pyotr Vasili, I guess is, is, was his sort of Slavic um, or Slavicized name, I suppose. Um, so, so this this man was a, a man that was raised really in, in what's today the country of Georgia and had been influenced by, you know, what we would consider um, a, a sense of sort of uh, socialist ideals or, or, um, or, or communist ideals in that sense of. But again, the 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 sense of of communism 
um, as connected to e egalitarianism, where people were equal uh, in front of the law, regardless of what your religion was, regardless of your, uh, you know, primary language of use, regardless of your place of birth um, or your, your station in society. So that, that sense of egalitarianism, I think, is the most important thing to understand here. And so when when and, and this also, of course, was deeply Marxist, too, because it dealt with also modes of production um, and, and the economy. So otherwise, it, I guess it would sort of fall short of that. Um, that full communist definition in the sense of, you know, Marxist communism. But the, the reality is, is that these guys, um, you know, Vasily and then the ones who followed after him, I think they saw a real um, opportunity that could bridge all these different communities and all these different, you know, um, ethnic communities, religious communities, cultural communities, linguistic communities, and, and have a place for just about everybody. Um, by the same token, I mean, people argued the same issue with with um, Bathism. I mean, it's not strange that, that you know, Michel Affleck was a Christian who was one of the creators of Bathism. You know, people saw uh, this idea of, of Arabism, right, to sort of connect everyone who spoke the Arabic language and create a sort of common culture and, and ethnicity uh, and, and ideal based on that um, as a way to transcend the religious thing. The religious thing, and I'm using thing in quotes here, um, because uh, Christians saw there, uh, and, and uh, certainly Jews as well, but also non-Christian, non-Jews, uh, or let's say all non-Muslims would see their, their, their place in society as only going so far uh, in most Muslim uh, contexts. And so because of that, I think many found, you know, baptism as a, as a sort of a, a good um, compromise where, you know, it was about being an Arab rather than about, you know, your, your religious identity. At least that's how it was, you know, offered to them. And so that was exciting. That was that was something that a lot of people sort of could feed into um, uh, and, and they found it palpable. But I think, it, you know, communism was the same or, or it, it worked in a similar fashion, let's say. And so it allowed for an outlet for these people who didn't could not find purchase in um, in the everyday um you know, cultural, basically cultural milieu, but but really this sort of monoculture that started to develop in most Middle Eastern countries, especially in Iraq, um, it gave them an outlet for that. And and so it's not strange that at, at times you had a large percentage, you know, uh, especially if you think about ratios of that party being Assyrian, you know, being uh, members of the Assyrian community. So, um you know, and then, you know, what does that have to do with today or what can we read into it for today? Um, I think what you see is that is or, or, or the, the, the sort of the great possibility of that is that, yeah, there is definitely a way in which a lot of different groups and peoples can work together. Um, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be in a, you know, under a particular ethnic um, nomenclature or a cultural understanding but there's ways in which, you know, there can be a sense of egalitarianism uh, in politics, in the state um, that allow people to do and to be who and what they are. I don't I mean, the part of the part of the problem is, is that I don't know if we can get by the the villainizing and the demonizing that has gone on with those terms today. So, you know, again, the, the sort of AOC, Bernie Sanders socialist stuff um, as being connected to communism and the, ne the, the negativity that's associated with all of that from a capitalist perspective, um, 
you know, how do you discuss that without getting another group of people uh, frustrated with you or, 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 or feeling sense of anger towards you or dismissing you altogether as just simply a, a socialist and a communist. So, you know, the, this is sort of the tough part about that. And that's why I, I, I tried to, when I explained the, the Assyrian involvement in the Iraqi Communist Party, um, it was an outlet. It was an outlet of egalitarianism for them. And, and I think until they started creating their own um, groups, and, and they did have their own groups as well, um, the, the sort of the, the, um, the, the uh, allowance of the Communist Party in Iraq to have that multicultural connection um, was allow, allowed for the Assyrians to be um, connected and to be uh, sort of plugged into a larger than uh, Assyrian um, network, which allowed them to influence things a little bit more. So it, it was definitely helpful. Um, and there are many people that espouse those beliefs. But again, you know, vastly different than what you would think of certainly Stalinism or, or communism and other aspects today. But Again, sense of egalitarianism where people could come together, um, people would be treated equally, people would be treated with respect. And that's really where, where you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I know it sounds like I'm romanticizing it, but I mean, that's really why these people got involved in it in the first place. And that's why it was, it was brought there, you know, um, by Vasily and, and others. And it's not, again, not so strange that most of its early leaders and a lot of its members and proportionally and, and, and uh, you know, in, in the sense of ratio, the Assyrians had a large role there. Uh, cool. Thanks. That's a really helpful way, I think, to frame it. Um, I guess Dean and I probably are uh, biased since we both are <laughs> communists, but that's okay. Um, I, I think we can still take what you're saying um, and uh, do something good with it. Um, well, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to us about uh, the issue of Assyrians and also talking about your book. It was really cool to hear, I think, all of this from you and really helpful to get like a broader understanding of what's been going on. Um, and, and so that we can just, you know, have some kind of aid to think through these, um, geographies and histories and, uh, groups of people that we have, uh, very little access to otherwise. So, um, really thanks a lot for coming and talking to us. Well, thank you guys. Thanks, Matt and Dean. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Although I feel like I just, of course, discussed, discussed, I don't know if you can say discussed when it's predominantly one side <laughs> where you just continue talking for, uh, uh, quite some time, but uh, I hope it made sense. I hope um, there wasn't anything that was too crazy or um, offensive to anyone. But I, I just wanted to uh, make things as as understandable, as clear as as possible in in regard to the Assyrians. Just because it, there's there are so many misnomers and uh, misconceptions about the Assyrians, about the Middle East in general, West Asia. You know, again, here's <laughs> to discuss terminologies and nomenclature. Um, and uh, I would say you guys, um, my guess would be that you probably feel something very similar if you are going to be self-identified communists and how somebody would identify a communist um, is also problematic because these, these terms mean so many different things to different people. And um, it's, it's very hard for, I think, for, for us to, to explain it um, in, each, in each one of these contexts so that people understand us uh, in a way that's, again, I like to go back to the idea of authentic, in a way that's authentic that's um, reflective of who and what we are. So in this, th this case of the Assyrians, again, you know, this was, this was a, at least my work was, was a narrative. It was one, it was a narrative of, of the Assyrians. And that's what I wanted people to understand. You know, it was, it was a narrative of the Assyrians and there are so many narratives of the Assyrians. You know, there are as many narratives as there are people, um, you know, and, uh, and it's, it's, 
I'll extend that again since, you know, for someone who does work on animal studies to say that, you know, recently we've started to, to think about, you know, the history of Europe um, from the perspective of um, horses, you know, think of, of the, the mm -hmm. certain conquests, um, certain wars with or without horses and the, the large role that horses have played uh, in the history of humanity, but in the history of, of, of the world in general. So, you know, these are things that we, we tend to bypass, we tend to make assumptions of, um, but usually they, there are lots of things that play roles in our, in our context and in any context that, um, for whatever reason, we either regulate to fourth world identity issues or, um, or to something we just don't seem to want to discuss. And so it's, it's my hope that at least this, this understanding of pen and historicism from the sense of panentheism, um, that it's okay if we don't have the whole story, you know, that there is a big S story. There is a, there is a big R reality, um, in that sort of objective sense. Um, but it's okay because we'll probably never understand that. And, and that's the point. We, we, we will not fully understand it. Um, but we can offer as many stories and every one of these stories are, they are that sort of reflection, you know, to go back to my book, they're a reflection, um, they're, they're a shadow of the, the big R reality, the big H history. They're just a, a reflection of it. Um, and that in and of itself makes every one of those stories so damn important um, and essential to who and what we are. Yeah, that's awesome. I really, I'm really coming to, I think, like and appreciate the pan and historical term. I think that's a really fun idea. I like that a lot. <laughs> I just I didn't want the, the the religious studies folks to, and I'm a religious studies scholar too, so I didn't want them to get too uh, hurt about that particular issue. Uh, I do love panentheism. I I mean I do love uh, panentheism as well. It's which is why I couldn't think of a better term. I mean I wanted to utilize some sort of an Eastern term for it, come up with some word in Assyrian, and then I thought, nah, this is probably easier <laughs> if I just do this. Um, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. If anyone can think of a, something that's uh, little more musical uh, that would be great <laughs> yeah well uh good luck anyway with uh with continuing with that that research and uh, also good luck with the fantasy novels <laughs> we'll look forward to checking those out oh i appreciate it that's that's where my heart lies right now that between that and animal studies so um i do appreciate that guys it's been a lot of fun um and it was a pleasure talking to you yeah yes too thank you matt thank right. you Gene. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard in this episode, you can support us on patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Also, don't forget, um, you should be supporting Maya as well because uh, they've got a lot of cool stuff going on. So patreon.com slash Ninwa. Um, neat. If you like the show, you can follow us on Twitter. Tweet about us. Tell everyone how much you like us and whatever. Um, you can also um, buy t-shirts uh, and stickers and things from us if you want on Redbubble. Uh, cool. Uh, thanks to Amaria Armstrong for the very good intro music, and thanks to The Illogical Spoon for the very good outro music. It's all just good music here on this podcast at both ends of it. <laughs> cool. See you next time. <laughs>